The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A note on the Organization of Information. I hooked you with that one, huh? But I think we can all admit it's very hard to know and to understand what Michael Cohen's LLC, Essential Consulting, actually did. Didn't seem like consulting, but perhaps understanding the nature of the business is in fact essential to untangling how Trump used or was used by Russian interests. But notice how I said untangling. As a news creator, leaning on atmospheric nefariousness or the whiff of malfeasance, it may make me feel like, I don't know, Raymond Chandler over here. But as a news consumer, it is frustrating. This weekend, the Times ran a huge story with this graph near the top. A New York Times review of thousands of pages of public records and interviews with bankers, lawyers, and businessmen who have interacted with Mr. Cohen reveal the degree to which he has often operated in the backwaters of the financial and legal worlds. The backwater That's not a real thing. That's not to say that the guy's on the up and up, but uh, is the water brackish because Cohen is dirty or just because we can't see it? The title of that story was How Michael Cohen, Trump's Fixer, Built a Shadowy Business Empire. Shadowy, backwaters, or this kind of phrasing from CNN. We're learning more about this new twist, a dramatic twist in the Mueller investigation. Twists. This Washington Post video does the same thing. President Trump's longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen, is entangled in multiple investigations. Now, the image there is Cohen in the center, and there are lines emanating out from him. And one line is to Stormy Daniels, and one line is to Trump, and one line is to Sean Hannity, and the National Enquirer, and the flag of Russia. The video doesn't, because the Washington Post is real news, the video doesn't fill in all the details, because they can't, but they note associations and dealings, and they play the kind of music you just heard. My point isn't that there's nothing there with Michael Cohen. I'm not saying that. My point is that in the absence of a direct clear, this led to that, he reported to him, this guy paid that guy. In the absence of that, the temptation is to emphasize how murky and entangled everything seems. But except to the partisans for whom just an insinuation of a misdeed is enough and it'll ring true— all of that murkiness and webs and, 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 and the lacuna of a miasma, it's just the opposite of clarifying. Webs and tangles confuse us. So I don't think the reporters who are working on this stuff should actually lean into the uncertainty and play it up. I mean, they can arch an eyebrow, but to the consumers, we're just confused and we just shrug a shoulder. I get the temptation Construct your story like you're a Chandler or John le Carre. But you know what? With those masters of thriller or noir, they build up the intrigue because they know what the payoff is. And so does the consumer. In fact, it's in the very book that they're holding right now. Anyone can make webs and entanglements seem dirty. If you don't believe me, just think about all those propagandistic videos from the far right or Cernovich or the Daily Caller. All of them have webs and the kind of music you heard. So use this as a rule of thumb. If you had a video with Hillary and Huma Abedin and George Soros, and they were all connected and there was a certain kind of music, if you took out those specific names and subbed in Donald Trump, Michael Cohen, and Victor Vexelberg, but you kept all the scoring and the graphics and the production values, if that's the case, you're probably doing a less than clarifying job. 
Now, on the specific Victor Vexelberg point, he is a Russian oligarch, ooh, nefarious, and, you know, it's not definitely Better Business Bureau type material. But two days ago, before this story broke that linked Vexelberg to Cohen, I was talking to former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall, and that will air soon on The Gist. But Vexelberg came up. This is before he was even tied into Cohen. We were talking about the list of oligarchs who were sanctioned, and McFall said this. I do think the Trump administration was a little sloppy in that list. Victor Vexelberg, to take a concrete name, he just had two of his employees arrested in Russia a couple months ago. Uh, he is not somebody that I consider to be cl- in the close inner circle. Then there's another group, and Prokhorov is a part of that group, Vexelberg, who's on the list recently, that made their money in the 90s, that had to make their peace with Putin, but are uncomfortable with the way that he runs Russia. Now, remember, Michael Cohen married a Ukrainian woman. He had tons of business with Ukrainians and Russians, and some of it was legit, and some of it was illegit, and some of it was in between. So what I would do if I was a good and dogged enough reporter to unearth these facts, although in this specific case with Vexelberg, all the reporters had to do was confirm what Michael Avenatti gave them, and they did, and that's fine. But what I would do is I would not structure the story as a web. I would go with a line. I would say this is but one scenario, but here it is. AT&T, an oligarch, and the Inquirer, they all know that Cohen is Trump's man. You can't put money in Trump's pocket directly, so you give it to Cohen. Trump is essentially charging money to be the head of state. That's one possibility, and Robert Mueller is looking into it. I could get my head around that a lot more easily than I can the foggy miasma of backwaters. We know that Cohen's practice was to deceive. Let us not build up that web too much. On the show today, Gina Haspel was before the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's the subject of my spiel. But first, on that very same subject, we break down her testimony with Tim Weiner, journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner, and author of Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. Gina Haspel was on Capitol Hill today facing questions from U.S. senators, a brief flurry of questions, as it were, in her quest to become head of the CIA. No better person to talk about this with than Tim Weiner. He is the author of Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. It's hard to find a description of that book without the word definitive attached to that. As I said, no better person to talk to. Hello, Tim. How are you? Hi, Mike. So what did you what did you think of the hearings? Well, Blinken, you missed them. Two hours, you know, compared to two, three days for some previous CIA nominees. The Republicans uh, threw softballs and the Democrats dodgeballs, and she dodged a lot of them. What were the best questions, the most revealing questions? I think uh, when a couple of Democratic senators uh, drilled down, and also Angus King, the independent from Maine, on questions about her resume... She would only discuss uh, what's publicly known, which is that she was at the CIA base in in Thailand uh, where uh, torture was conducted in the last months of 2002, and that she participated in the destruction of videotapes of uh, torture, which took place uh, at that base prior to her arrival, 92 tapes in all. And on the first, she said, you know, I'm not on those videotapes. In other words, she wasn't throwing uh, buckets of water over the prisoner for waterboarding. 
And on the second, she said, you know, I was just following orders, uh, the Nuremberg defense, which didn't work too well for the Germans, but may work in her case. She's deciding what's classified in her resume, which is almost everything, even though some uh, important details are a matter of public record. When it got to the question of, you know, you and your boss weren't authorized to destroy these tapes. Authorities as high as Dick Cheney said, don't do it. Do you remember, you know, higher authority being opposed to that? I don't recall. And on a crucial question, for example, uh, uh, Senator Kamala Harris of California said, is torture moral? Yes or no? No, she wouldn't wouldn't go there. Now, isn't the usual answer to that? Of course it is. It's just that this wasn't torture. I mean, that's what uh, George W. Bush has said. Torture is not something that's good, and it's also not something we do. We got rulings that told us that waterboarding isn't torture. Well, in fact, uh, legislation passed by Congress and initially uh, written by uh, Senator John McCain, who unfortunately wasn't there today, outlawed it in 2005. Question, torture moral, yes or no? Answer, CIA did extraordinary work. Trump says torture works, does it? Mm, I don't believe torture works, but... We got valuable information. And isn't that untrue? That torture works? No, the second part. I mean, this is one thing that Feinstein and the CIA went back and forth on. I think it's an extremely important point, and it shouldn't be a Rorschach test. I mean, you would know. Is there good evidence that torture has yielded actionable and unique information? No. In fact, uh, the CIA inspector general said uh, it didn't. Look, people who are being tortured will say anything to stop the torture. Uh, Howie Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11, was waterboarded 184 times in 2003. And, you know, he told the CIA that there were black Muslims training up in Montana to execute terrorist attacks, which, you know, is not true. Yeah, so it does seem odd to me. I could understand looking at Gina Haspel's resume and the things she's done and saying it is unfortunate that we cannot know more, but it is also proper that we cannot know more. And I could also understand saying that there are conflicting virtues in such an organization. And one is we really do want people to follow orders, but I can't really understand the way of thinking that you would want someone in that job who could not say who would not say just flat out that torture is immoral. You know, espionage is amoral. A CIA officer working overseas, as Haspel did for most of her career, is a species of legal criminal. Espionage is illegal everywhere. You're asking people to commit treason when you recruit them as agents. It's a dirty, difficult, dangerous business, and it requires lying about who you are and what you do. Now, you can be a great clandestine services officer, but when you get back to Washington, you can't lie to your fellow Americans. You can't lie to your fellow uh, CIA administrators and bosses back at headquarters. If you do, you're dead. Intelligence is based on trust, and if you can't trust one another, you're doomed. I, I think it's such an excellent point, and beyond that... This is also why we have civilian control and oversight of the CIA. We might want a nest of these amoral actors doing the best they can to get us the information. But we also should very much want the people at the top defining where the lines are. 
And uh, that's why elected senators have to confirm a Gina Haspel. I understand that she has a great resume and she's skilled in many areas, but it seems very problematic to have no one in the chain who will say, well, the bright lines are to be drawn by me. The great problem uh, with congressional oversight of the CIA is that oversight is one of those words that has two meanings. Yeah. Okay. Sanction. Yeah. (laughs) To, to actually look over and to overlook and, you know, since 9-11, it has been the prevalent meaning of congressional oversight to look the other way. There are exceptions. There are important exceptions. But we've gotten to the point in this country where certainly most of our elected representatives, or a majority of them, are willing to take what comes in exchange for a promise that there won't be another 9-11 attack. Should senators have demanded, sort of set up a scenario where they concede that perhaps you were a person in the chain of command who had an order that was signed off by the Justice Department? But what we want to do here is determine that if you were higher up in that chain of command, what would you have said? How would you have advised the Justice Department to have decided? Did we get any sense of what the answer to that question might have been? You know, there's a crucial couple of years, 2005, 2006, 2007, which Haspel would not address when she was a senior officer in counterterrorism and in the clandestine service, the division of CI that does spying. Torture had been outlawed, largely at the instigation of Senator McCain, who knows something about torture, having been tortured as a prisoner of war. What's the CIA doing in response? Is it saying, stand down to everybody, use kid gloves, follow the Army field manual, which forbids violent interrogations? There's a lot of ambiguity because people have been uh, deceiving their superiors on this issue, on the destruction of the tapes, and uh, everybody's kind of hunkered down in the defensive posture because nobody wants to be indicted. We don't know what Haspel did in positions of Uh, first-rank responsibility. We do know this. I think that most people at the CIA, both the uh, intelligence officers and the uh, analysts, are going to be standing on their chairs cheering if she's confirmed, because she's one of them. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of politicians running the CIA. Mike Pompeo, Porter Goss uh, was uh, Bush's choice, uh, congressman, terrible director, disastrous leadership. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been somebody straight out of senior leadership in the clandestine service confirmed since uh, Richard Helms uh, in 1965. Was he a good chief? He, in my opinion, was one of the very best. Unfortunately, he also uh, had to plead guilty to lying to Congress later in his career. He paid a $2,000 fine. You know, he had two oaths. One, put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, and swear to tell the truth at his confirmation hearings to become ambassador to Iran in 1973. Second oath, to protect the secrets. Asked if the CIA had anything to do with trying to overthrow the government of Chile. He said, no, Senator, nope, not us. Lie. Operation Condor. And these twin oaths between keeping the secrets and telling the truth to your fellow Americans... 
Haspel is the embodiment of the contradiction. She chose not to talk about crucial elements of her, her career, including elements that you know would sound great, probably, if the American people knew about them. She didn't say, but I can tell you that you know she served in Baku, Azerbaijan. She served in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. She served in the Middle East, and uh, with specific emphasis on, on targeting uh, Moscow's uh, espionage in those countries. That's hard work, and she deserves respect for that. And, uh, you know, the CIA has chosen to, to classify details like she once helped out Mother Teresa. Well, does that make her a saint? Apart from the enhanced interrogation, extraordinary rendition aspects of what she did, or as much as we can know what she did, does her experience, resume, and comportment argue for her or against her to lead the CIA? She's obviously smart. She's obviously dedicated. She obviously, having spent the last 31 years working at CIA, knows the agency uh, upside down and backwards. Having particular expertise in uh, Russian operations, uh, uh, she might be handy to have around when the Russian investigation gets closer and closer to the White House, which it will. The intelligence component of that is going to be crucial, and cooperation with Robert Mueller will be essential to uh, the pursuit of the case. What if Trump says, I want you to do something immoral, illegal, or just plain insane? She said, well, I am not going to reinstitute torture. She said that flat out. She had to say that, uh, or she'd be doomed. But, I mean, what I'd want to know, if I were sitting up there, among the many questions I'd want to know, is how do you brief the president when he won't listen to anything longer than a tweet? How will intelligence inform the White House? What if he doesn't want to talk to you? What if he does things that you think are palpably nuts? How do you speak truth to power? From your reporting, does the rank and file of the CIA or even the elites within the CIA, do they view the enhanced interrogation program as just doing our job and perhaps a, 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 an ugly consequence of their loyalty and their oath? Or do they view it as something that should have been done? And by ugly, they mean, yeah, we know that it was harsh, but it was the right thing to do. I think now they realize, you know, 15, 16 years after the fact, that they didn't know how to do this. They should never have been given the job and uh, that they don't want to do it again. That's a consensus. From your reporting, that's a consensus in the CIA. Well, I mean, people probably should have gone to jail over this. We've never had a full reckoning. Uh, we've never had a, a public uh, examination of this. We've never had the facts to deal with that. But these were violations of the laws of God and man, not to mention the Geneva Conventions. So why is, why is it that then she's so popular? Why does the CIA react more like a, a police department where there are a bunch of corrupt cops, let's say, but most of the police say we're still under fire and we still are a band of brothers, as opposed to, let's say, some precincts within the Catholic Church who said this is very tough, but a reckoning is due and these need to these people need to be rooted out. And it's proper that people who are involved in, say, the pedophilia scandal get their comeuppance. Why is it more of a circling the wagons if they've had this rethinking of the actual misdeeds? When you read into the clandestine service of the CIA, when you become a spy, it's like you're being 
initiated into a mystical sect. Only you and your fellow brothers and sisters can understand. Everybody else doesn't understand. No one can fully grasp the, the power, the mystique of your um, uh, smoke and your mirrors and your rituals and your rites. That said, intelligence is a necessity. Yes, it's, it's distasteful. Yes, it's a dangerous and dirty business. But if you're a superpower that's projecting your power overseas, if you don't have good intelligence, you're dead. When intelligence fails, people die. And, you know, we've only been at this for barely 70 years, the United States, running a secret intelligence service. The British have been at it since Queen Elizabeth I in the 1500s. The Russians have been at it since Peter the Great uh, in the early 1800s. And the Chinese have been at it since Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War 26 centuries ago. Yeah. So, you know, we're grown-ups. We realize we have to be good at this. Are we good at it? Not very. So I think, you know, for CI officers to have one of their own put in uh, the number one position as director, someone who, with the exception of torture, had by all accounts, an exemplary career. They're willing to live with the stain that will not out. And my last question is, how might things have been different if John McCain were there in person? That would have changed the entire ballgame. If McCain had lifted his bony index finger and pointed at Gina Haspel and said, you are a participant in one of the darkest chapters in the history of this country, you countenanced torture. She could not have looked him back in the eye. Tim Weiner is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. He won that for Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA. Thank you, Tim. You bet, Mike. And now, the spiel, an end note on the Haspel hearings. It just might be the case that Haspel really can't reveal what she did on many of her postings. That might be the case. I'm willing to entertain that. But if that is so, and if you were a senator, would you default to, well, because I can't disqualify your assurances that you acted in a moral manner and further the interests of the United States in the short and long term, because I can't confirm that, I will take your word for it. Or should we default to... Though it may well be the case that you behaved in a moral manner, and if we really knew the depth of all you'd do, we'd be filled with admiration. That could be the case. But since I can't confirm that, I can't confirm you. What would you do if you were a senator? We are left to examine the information we have, I say. And much of that information is that whatever you think of the enhanced interrogation program, she has the support of the CIA that is used as a a big calling card is a big qualification in and of itself. Those inside the CIA trust her implicitly, putting aside the interrogation program. She is, whatever you think of enhanced interrogation and her part therein, she's a qualified candidate. Former CIA director Michael Hayden gave me a version of that last week. When she goes up there next week for a testimony, people are going to try to relitigate the agency's past, yes. of which Gina was just a part. And I've done that. You can do that. It's not going to be very productive. This is about the agency's present and future. 
President, we talked about President Trump, how he makes decisions. He is surrounding himself as he goes forward in the administration with more folks who kind of think and talk like him. Mm-hmm. And so if you're really worried about the future of the country, Gina Haspel's the woman you want in the room. Gina Haspel has no political future. She, she, she's not going to be on the Sunday talk shows. And that's why you want her in the room. Gina Haspel's nomination to be director is the most powerful sign I can give you that CIA intends to neither repudiate nor repeat its past. Let us now also consider that Gina Haspel destroyed the tapes that documented the enhanced interrogation. This was in contravention of direct White House orders, Bush White House orders. John Bennett, who is in charge of CIA clandestine services, gave a rare interview to the New York Times, and he too praised Gina Haspel. The people who took on the hardest jobs at the most critical moments were widely respected. They weren't seen as tainted, and not just Gina Haspel. I mean, the people's careers were certainly not damaged by having taken part in our most aggressive programs, because those were the priorities uh, of the president at the time and of the agency. And we put some of our very best officers into those programs, because if it's your most important priority, you want your best people working for it. Again, the argument, Haspel's great credentials. She's the best there is out there. She has the respect of her peers. As Mike Hayden said, We don't have a left-hander and a right-hander in the bullpen, Mike. Okay. All right, we go out to the mound and say, Gina, it's, it's not yours, give me the ball. There's no one else out there. Yes, she was involved with the destruction of the tapes, but she has the respect and admiration of her superiors and the people who worked with her. Really, the CIA as a whole respects her, despite what she did with those tapes. But I would suggest the proper construction isn't that she's great but destroyed the interrogation tapes. I think it's closer to she is regarded as great because she destroyed the interrogation tapes. There are plenty of CIA officers who disagreed with the order to torture. As you heard Tim Weiner say, there are many more who have come to think that it was a mistake. But the action of destroying the tapes, that seems likely to me to be the very act that solidified her legacy in the minds of the CIA because they know that whether it was right or wrong to torture, and I believe that many believe that it was wrong, some on a moral level, some on a practical level, but whether it was right or wrong to torture, they assessed the blowback from the revelation of the torture And they all made, I would think, a similar decision, that the blowback needs to be contained. That's in the national interest. They saw what happened at Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib set back U.S. interests. But when we say Abu Ghraib set back U.S. interests or the torture at Abu Ghraib was a black eye, what's the black eye? Was the black eye that the thing happened or was the black eye that the public knew about it? To the CIA, it doesn't make much difference. There are two ways to keep the public from knowing about a misdeed. Way one is don't commit the misdeed. Way two is be skilled at the cover-up. I would imagine that even among those officers who thought the program was wrong, very, very few thought that their fellow rank-and-file officers should be the ones to pay for it. And very many thought a full accounting of the program would not be in the U.S. interests. And the thing that I come back to is It's not for them to make that judgment. It is for us and our elected representatives, most of whom seem very eager to defer to the very agency and people that they are tasked with taking responsibility for. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He did make that red eye. 
but now he might have pink eye. It seems less severe. It's not. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, would like to make clear that all references in the credits to conjunctivitis are for humor purposes only. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's one to point his bony finger right at Pierre Bienname and say, I patch. We'd like to thank the Slate Plus listeners who support the show. If you're not a member, learn more about the many, many enhanced benefits of membership at slate.com slash gist plus. The gist, in addition to conjunctivitis, be on the alert for atopic dermatitis, pityriasis rosea, and contact dermatitis. They're all covered in my National Book Award-winning work, Legacy of Rashes. Oomperu, deperu, deperu, and thanks for listening.